Hello and welcome to the Spectator's Books podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week I'm very pleased to be joined by Professor Robert Alter, who has just completed, or recently completed, a titanic work of scholarship in translating the whole of the Hebrew Bible into English. Robert, welcome. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. How long has this taken? I mean, it's, it's such a huge undertaking. Well, I think I count a total of 24 years. <laughs> and it sort of started by accident, didn't it? I mean, you, you did a couple of books and then were encouraged, as it were, or <laughs> pushed off. That's it. I, I began Genesis, uh, I think, around 1994 as a kind of experiment. And I was skeptical about it because I wanted to get something of the Hebrew style, which I think is quite wonderful, into English. And I thought it really was not feasible because the structure of the two languages is is so different. And I thought, well, maybe when I finish Genesis, everybody will hate it and I will hate it. But it, it was better than I thought it could be. And so then I was encouraged to do more. And the reception was good. I mean, what's, what's terrific for, as it were, lay readers is you've, you, you've published a book called The Art of Bible Translation that's come out around now, around the same time as your, your monumental version thing. Right. But, I, I think it's officially going to be out in a month or so. Sure. And that has the great virtue of providing a sort of map and a rationale and an explanation of, which I, I found very interesting, why... You thought there was a, you know, a real gap in the market for doing this, because as you you say, and you're quite harsh in your introduction, you say actually most of the modern translations of the Hebrew Bible have not been much or indeed any good. Yes, I emphatically believe that. And why is that? Well, there are, I think two basic reasons. One is. Alas, all these learned Bible scholars, and I do respect their learning, who who do advanced degrees at Oxford and Cambridge and Harvard and Yale and so forth, they seem to be cut off from contemporary literary culture. So they they translate with a tin ear in English for levels of diction, for idiom, for, for what works as literary English. So that's one problem. The other problem is that they just don't see the literary structures of the Hebrew Bible. That, that is, when, when you do an advanced degree in biblical studies at one of these places that I, I've just enumerated, and there are a few more, of course, in both over your way and our way, you spend a lot of time focusing on the evolution of the text, its composite nature, how it matches up or doesn't match with with the archaeological record. Let's see what what else. Ancient Near Eastern history and, and so forth. But you will never take a course in biblical prose style or, or, or narrative technique in the Bible. So they, they rather run roughshod uh, over important literary effects in the Hebrew. Say, for example, if the repetition of a particular term in an episode is crucial to the thematic development of the story, they don't repeat it. They feel, well, we've said it once, we'll say it now in, in, in a different way. Yeah, I mean, I, I think 
I think you, I'm not sure if I quote you accurately, but you say something to do with the sociology of knowledge, that you've got kind of theologians and archaeologists, nature historians and philologists and so on working on this stuff, but you haven't got people with a literary ear. That's exactly right. But the literary qualities of the Hebrew Bible, I mean, what are they? Because you do talk in your book about, you know, the particular decision for a start to which is unusual, as you say, and says something about the readership, that this was a sort of religious narrative which is largely told in prose, and that's an unusual choice, isn't it? Yeah, in the ancient world, definitely. Yeah, and what what does that say? Why is it in prose? And what did it mean that it was? Well, it's a little hard for us to ascertain. I mean, some scholars have made the claim that, well, poetry was associated with, with the pagan epics of such as have been unearthed in uh, the city of Ugarit, which is roughly in modern-day Syria on the Mediterranean coast and antecedes the Bible by a few centuries. Uh, I'm not sure if that's true, but literacy came rather early along the Mediterranean littoral and littoral, (laughs) and, and these stories were composed in writing, which is very different from Homer, where they're oral formulaic compositions, so they're kind of improvisations on traditional themes. Now, when you compose in writing, I think you have the option of using prose to tell your story, and if you're using prose, then you can manipulated in ways that that you couldn't if if you're composing hexameters uh, as the Homeric bards did in with the traditional story so to take one example dialogue now i've come to realize that over the years more than i did when when i wrote a book on biblical narrative many years ago that the true precursor to novelistic dialogue, and I'm an avid reader and critic of novels, is dialogue in the Bible. And and what you find is that language can be bent and reshaped to sound more like speech, to reflect the particular situation of a speaker in the dialogue, say, if the person is baffled or embarrassed or, 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 or whatever, and to express the character of the, the person speaking. So all, all this is available if the, the writer is sitting with parchment and stylus and figuring out, well, how am I going to word this? And you say the first thing that any character says in the Hebrew Bible is always especially important, don't you? Yes, it is. I mean, what what does that first utterance do? Well, because uh, I should add this, that it's something we were not necessarily conscious of, but the, the, the burden of the narratives is carried through dialogue. That, that, that is, there are drastic summaries, like Jacob and Esau growing up is told in three or four words. And then when you get to an important narrative event, things slow down so that narrating time is equal to narrated time, which means it's dialogue. And 
So how we perceive a character becomes quite important in terms of how that character speaks. And so the biblical writers developed this convention of the first words they put in the mouth of a, of a character tell us a lot about the character. For example, Jacob, the first words that, that, that he says are to his brother Esau, who is famished and wants some of that, that lentil stew that he's been cooking up. And, and he says, and the word order is important, by the way, he says, sell now your birthright to me. So he, he calculates the order of his words. First the imperative, sell, and then now, not tomorrow or next week, but right now. And then the loaded object of the verb, your birthright, and at the very end of the sentence, to me. So you get a sense of a calculating man, a bargainer, and this is the way Jacob appears for a good stretch of his story. Yeah, and you've got there's, a, there's another instance of the of the pottage related language where you talk about the the red red. Right. Now, of course, the the red red is partly a punning etymology. The Bible is full of puns, by the way, and alas, usually you cannot translate them. Occasionally, I try to, but so Esau is supposed to be the progenitor of the people of Edom, and uh, the Hebrew word for red is Edom. So it's virtually the same word. So the writer is interested in highlighting this word. I'm sorry, it's Adom, not Adom. Uh, Adom. And he has Esau say, Adom, Adom, Hazeh, this red, red stuff. Actually, the, the literal sense of the Hebrew is simply this red, red. Now, I've. Uh, this is really a good example uh, of what, what I call the bending of language in, in dialect. That, that is, all the translations that I've looked at, the English translations, say, well, the, the King James fudges it all together by saying th this red pottage. It, it totally normalizes it. This is out of a preconception that it's the Bible, after all. It, it should be using proper language, right? The modern translations do tend to say this red stuff, which is okay, but they all neglect the, the almost stammering repetition of red, red, which beautifully reflects Esau's impatience, his hunger, and underscores the way he can't think of the normal Hebrew word for pottage. Yeah, he's hungry. <laughs> right. You talk about the kind of literary features as being very important, very intrinsic. I, wonder, I mean, it's kind of dual questions. One of them is, are those features, as it were, consistent across the many books and the many writers of this collection of texts? And, and sort of, is there a, a line of transmission or a, a kind of note that was set by the writers of the earlier works that that have been picked up by the later ones. And also, does it fit into, or do we know anything about the literary context within which they'd have existed? So I'll start with your, your second question. Actually, we don't know much about the, the literary context. 
Some people think that they were the writers were products of scribal schools. Some think that they were priests. Who knows? The one thing I would say about the literary context, this is not exactly defining the context, is that these writers who certainly had religious ends in mind, and national ends, of course, like in the patriarchal stories, they wanted to give uh, an, an account of the founding fathers that, that would be a kind of prefiguration of the later history of the tribes of Israel, okay? But these writers somehow... The, they were writers as much as Ian McEwen or, or John Updike was. They reveled in their medium. They delighted in fleshing out character and introducing contradictions and flaws in characters that had really nothing to do with the national narrative. So that's, that much I think we can safely infer from the evidence of the stories they've left us. Now, your other question is very apt. Is it the same all the way through? And I would say no. It goes something like this. There is a body of narrative from that runs from Genesis through the end of the Book of Kings, which does seem to be conform to the the same set of uh, literary techniques and conventions. I would say that, that some of those books and some of the, and, and they obviously were, were produced by different people, uh, some of those books and some of those stories are more subtle, more inventive than others, just as you would expect some writers to be better than others. But uh, it, it's a, a fairly coherent body of, of uh, narrative. Now, w when you get on to, and most of these, by, by the way, well, they were probably edited in the Babylonian exile, which would be after the year 586 BC. They were composed definitely during the, what scholars call the first commonwealth, that, that is from around the year 1000 to the destruction of the Kingdom of Judah in 586. The books that have narrative content or, or that are entirely narrative that were written afterwards are very different. Esther is extremely different from its predecessors. It, it, it delights in descriptive detail, which you don't have earlier. It, it, it seems to have been written to a large extent for entertainment. That, that's why the, the, those rather dour characters at Qumran, the, the people who put together the Dead Sea Scrolls, didn't think that it was canonical. It's the only book of the Bible that wasn't found among the Dead Sea Scrolls. The, then we, we have, to be perfectly honest, uh, some rather lackluster narrative, like the, the Book of Chronicles, which retells the, the old story, summarizing and boulderizing, is pretty dull stuff. Then uh, what else did, did we have? The, the Book of Ruth, which is a, a marvelous little book, tries to imitate 
the style uh, of the earlier narratives. That, that is, you, you may remember that it begins with, uh, and it happened in the time when the judges were ruling, and it wants to set the story back in the period of judges. But the evidence is it was actually written in the period of the return to Zion under the Persian Empire. So it uses this old style, this classical Hebrew style, because after the language had changed. But there are little telltale slips. I think this almost always happens when a writer tries to archaize. He's not quite conscious of the fact that this word or that word was not in use 400 years earlier, and he lets it slip into his writing. But the remarkable thing about the Book of Ruth is it's idyllic. There's nothing idyllic in the earlier narratives. And it, it it's a story in which everybody is a good person. There are no evil people in, in the the book of Ruth, whereas the, there are plenty of bad guys in the earlier narratives. And you were talking this this question of register, which is obviously very important in how you translate the Bible. You know, you want to make it sound. You don't want to make it sound completely contemporary, but at the same time, you don't want to fill it with these and wherefores and forsooths. Do we have a sense of what sort of register those early books struck? I mean, you describe them as being very paratactic, very, you know, and, 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 using actually a, a, a rather simple, you know, restricted vocabulary to us, rather sort of simple language. I mean, would that have been close to the spoken idioms of the time or would there have been a sort of distancing grandeur to it? I mean, there's, there's patterning in it, of course, as well. Well, I suspect now, now. Obviously, no recordings have come down to us of this spoken Hebrew. Let's say in the eighth or ninth century before the Christian era, so we, we don't know for sure. My surmise is that there was a certain distance. Here's one reason why I, I, I think that. It looks to me as though the vocabulary of the prose narratives is limited by convention, a little bit the way in French neoclassical theater, you know, you, know, you could use only the primary color words. You, you, you couldn't put in heliotrope and fuchsia. And it seems that, that this, this kind of conventional understanding governed biblical narrative. So, uh, to and uh, w one way uh, you can see this is, is that the poetry uses a, a much different and larger vocabulary, w whereas there's only one word for light, as in the light, daylight, in the narratives. There, in the poetry, there are words that would be equivalent to brilliance, effulgence, dazzle, and so forth. Now, this leads me to think that an everyday culture wouldn't have been able to manage with so few words. So that's one probable gap between everyday speech and, and what goes on, the language of the narrative. Otherwise, we don't really know about grammatical forms. Did, did they use different grammatical forms in, in everyday speech? But another ground for inferring a difference 
is that when the dialogues try to suggest, I, I don't think they're really transcriptions of the way people spoke, but they're, they're full of gestures toward the colloquial, uh, and all those look a little different from the surrounding narrative prose. Yeah. So that's my guess about all this. But, I mean, one of the things, one of the pitfalls, as you put it, into which a lot of the translations that you, you know, aren't so keen on have fallen seems to be that they try and introduce sort of elegant variation or a certain kind of Latinate grandeur to it. Right, right. And there's a, I guess there's a theological point there that comes on from the literary one, which you seem to detect quite often that people are, are trying to explain or clarify the Bible. Yes, that's right. That's, a, that, that's obviously a mistake. I mean, do you think that in translation you want to keep it gnomic in places or keep it, you know, less clear? Yes. Maybe I can think of an example in, in a moment, but... Somewhere, uh, maybe in one of my introductions, I, I, I call this the heresy of explanation. That is, modern translators have a, a deep mistrust, or I would say underestimation, of readers. So to begin with, they don't seem to think, and I think it's an astounding assumption, that readers can understand metaphors. So when when Joseph says accuses his brothers of being spies, he says, the nakedness of the land you have come to spy out uh, or to see. Uh, and now that's a very potent word, that, that particular na nakedness. It's the same word that, that you have in the prohibitions of incest, uh, that is not seeing your mother's nakedness. And so it's very resonant. It gives you a strong sense of the, the, the vehemence of Joseph's accusation. Now, all but one of the translations by committee that, that I've looked at, the modern translations, don't think that readers could understand what the nakedness of the land means. So you have such phrases as, the weak points in our defense, which I think is dreadful. It, it really spoils the, the, the original. Yeah. And another thing you talk about is the difficulty of rendering biblical cadence. I mean, there is a problem, isn't there? You know, we, we have all sorts of, you know, articles and so forth that hedge around our words, and, and Hebrew makes do with... You know, I think there's something that's three words that you can't render in less than, you know, six or quite often. I mean, is, is that completely insuperable or are there ways no, to No, not entirely. It? Now, you know, biblical Hebrew, modern Hebrew has changed in, to a large extent in this regard, is what linguists call a synthetic language, which means doesn't mean artificial. It, it means that single words synthesize but by their grammatical form what the subject is, what the object is. You know, you have a suffix for an object. So it's very compact. Added to which is the fact that, that unlike Greek and Latin, or let's say modern German, Biblical Hebrew doesn't have a lot of polysyllabic words. And 
As you would expect, writers take advantage of this compactness of the language. So I've done a couple of things to partly overcome. You can't entirely overcome this difficulty. One is that I avoid as much as possible, unless I'm cornered by the meaning, I avoid as much as possible Latinate and Greek origin words. One strategy is simply to to favor the Anglo-Saxon component of English vocabulary. You know, we, we, you can say fire instead of something like conflagration. Yeah, and actually one of the, the as you describe it, the the sort of three stress versets right. in which it's set do sound quite like Anglo-Saxon verse, you know, that that kind of short little half verses with... Yes, it does a bit. I hadn't thought about that, but but actually a review of one of my earlier volumes of translation, I think it was in the Times of London, not the TLS, which was quite favorable, and I don't remember who the reviewer is off the top of my head, said that that he liked the fact that, that I, I was bringing the the language of the Bible back to Anglo-Saxon poetry, which is a little bit of an overstatement, but there's maybe a, a, a kernel of truth in that. So that's one thing I, I, I do to cut down the the number of syllables and sounds. The the other thing is often, especially in the poetry, you can cut out certain necessary, unnecessary words and get close to or even replicate the Hebrew rhythm. I'll give you one example. Psalm 30, the, the speaker who is pleading with God not to let him die, he apparently has some grave illness, says, what profit is there in my blood? Now, if you listen to that as I recited it, it's a half line of poetry. You can hear that it doesn't have much of a, a rhythm. What profit is there in my blood? Whereas all you have to do is take out the is there, what profit in my blood, and you, you have a, a real cadence, which actually is pretty much the same as the Hebrew cadence, which sounds like this, ma betza bidami. So uh, th- that's something that, that I do repeatedly in the poetry. Yeah. You mentioned the King James Bible. I, I mean, I'm kind of encouraged that you take, you know, when you're, when you're sort of machine gunning the 20th century translations, you do say, actually, King James, the King James compositors did something pretty special. I mean, you've got some time for that. Oh, it did. <laughs> Uh, you, you know, now I, I didn't set out to imitate the, the, the King James, but w- w- there was a certain common denominator, w- which was an orientation toward literalism in, in the translation, and uh, a predisposition to mirror the Hebrew syntax. I, I, I think that the committees assembled by King James did that because they probably felt out of religious conviction that if God put the words in this order, we should do it too. And I, of course, do it for more literary reasons. But they, so they did that. They had 
many of the translators had a fine sense of English style. Lancet Andrews, who was, I, I think, the most influential among them, I believe he was the Bishop of London, he was a, a fine English stylist because we, we have his printed sermons. You remember T.S. Eliot quotes him in, in, in a couple of his poems. And this is in sharp contrast to the the modern translators who, who as I, I said earlier, seem to be more or less out of touch with the literary culture of our day. It's sort of like special teams in American football. It's a specialization of knowledge which is not altogether a, a good thing. So the, the, uh, I'm putting aside two issues involving the, the King James. Uh, one is obviously the language is archaic now and some of it, it's a little more archaic uh, than Shakespeare, actually, and so some of it is not readily comprehensible to many readers unless they happen to be specialists in Renaissance literature. And that's not the fault of the King James people. The, the, the other thing is, of course, that there are many errors, some of them quite egregious, because the, their grasp of Hebrew was, it was good enough, but, but it had lots of holes in it, I, I, I would put it that way. But otherwise, stylistically, they did an especially good job with the, the narrative prose. And with the poetry, it's a little more uneven, I think, than most people recall. That is, they're magnificent things. The rendering of the the, the great poetry of Second Isaiah, the, 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 those texts that, that Handel used in the Messiah, is in, in many ways quite wonderful. The translation of Ecclesiastes, uh, which we now generally call Kohelet, is all, all that gets many of the cadences of the Hebrew, and it's very evocative, e even if... Uh, some of the constructions of Hebrew, crucial Hebrew terms are actually wrong. I would say about the poetry, two things. One is it doesn't aspire, the King James Version, to replicate the compactness of the Hebrew. It may well be that they didn't quite hear the Hebrew. I'm not, I'm not sure about that. that. That is, it may be that it was mainly an ancient language that they decoded from uh, the, the written page. So the, there are magnificent lines of poetry that, that are quite different from biblical poetry, like, yea, though I walk in the valley of the shadow of death. That's really great but it's about three times as long as the Hebrews. So it sounds rather different. The, the, the other thing is, and in my book on translating the Bible, I, I think I give one or two examples that, that one finds lines where, say, one half the line is absolutely spot-on perfect. You know, you, you couldn't make it better than that. And then the second half of the line will run on in an arrhythmic way, sticking in all kinds of unnecessary words. So it, it's a little uneven, but it still is far better th than what the 20th century translators have done. Well, it's an auspicious start anyway to the 21st century that we have yours. 
So, Robert, thank you very much indeed for your time. Well, it's been a pleasure talking with you. You were listening to The Spectator's Books podcast. I very much hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, please do consider rating or reviewing us on the iTunes store. We'd love to hear from you.